This is Dr. Marty Freed. Dr. Shreya Trivedi. Dr. Milner Ruthen. And Dr. Vishal Shah. This is the Core IM Five Pearls Podcast. Bringing you high yield, evidence based pearls. And one quick announcement before we get started. We are excited to launch our new website. Finally, a centralized location to find all things Core IM. Our new home on the web is coreimpodcast.com. So on the site, you'll find our podcast as well as episode pages with transcripts if you want to read along, show notes, and of course, references. And there is a new feature in the works. Flashcards. So check back frequently and subscribe for new updates. And for those of you who follow us on social media, we're going to be posting our 12 Lead Thursday and Trivia Tuesday posts under the Knowledge Bytes section. And that's Bytes with a Y. But seriously, this website could not have been possible without the vision and talent of one of our team members behind the scenes, Dr. Amy Yu. We are so grateful to Amy. Yeah, she is honestly a a gem. You know, I think it's so hard to find people who not only have that creativity, but also that leadership and ability to execute. Honestly, she is the definition of a triple threat. threat. So check out (laughs) coreimpodcast.com and please let us know what you think about it. Today we are discussing Barrett and his esophagus. (laughs) Also known as Barrett's esophagus. Thank you to our peer reviewers, Dr. Nicholas Shaheen, Dr. David Katzka, and Dr. Joe Kingsbury. We'll hear from Dr. Shaheen and Dr. Kingsbury later in the podcast. And we have some friends with us. Yes, we do. We are so excited to be joined on the podcast today by our friends, Drs. Milna Rufin and Dr. Vishal Shah. Milna and Vishal, why don't you go ahead and introduce yourselves? Thanks, guys. Um, I'm so I'm Milna. I am currently a PGY3 in the primary care residency program at NYU. And I'm super happy to be staying on as chief resident in July. And I'm Vishal. I'm currently a hospitalist at Mayo Clinic Health Systems and soon-to-be preventative health fellow at Mayo. Right. And thank you guys so much for your work in prepping for this episode. Welcome. Yeah. Of course. All right, guys. Let's get started with some of the questions on the pearls we'll be covering. Test yourself by pausing after each of the five questions. Remember, the more you test yourself, the deeper your learning gains. Pearl 1, definitions. What is Barrett's esophagus and why should we care? Pearl 2, screening population. How have the screening guidelines changed for Barrett's and why? Pearl 3, patient counseling. How do we screen for Barrett's and how can we counsel our patients on what to expect? Pearl 4, treatment and surveillance. How do we treat patients with Barrett's and what does surveillance look like for our patients with Barrett's? And Pearl 5, a throwback pearl, trending troponins. What does a change in troponin over time tell you? All right, guys, I am really excited to talk about Barrett's today. Honestly, at first I thought, hmm, Barrett's is pretty straightforward. But after reading more about it, I think the nuances are really fascinating and confusing at times and left me really excited to share some of these nuggets with you. Unfortunately, I think that our specialty has given people even more reason to be confused because as we've learned more about the disease, we keep evolving and changing recommendations such that, um, you know, there was a time when patients with Barrett's were told to get an endoscopy every year. And, you know, if you've had Barrett's for 30 years, you've lived through probably four or five iterations of these guidelines and we're treating you, you haven't changed, but we keep changing. 
So that was Dr. Nicholas Shaheen. He is a professor of medicine and epidemiology at the University of North Carolina, Chapel Hill, and chief of the Division of Gastroenterology at UNC. He helped to write the American College of Gastroenterology guidelines on Barrett's esophagus, so you'll hear from him periodically throughout the podcast. All right, guys, I have to start with being honest. I have my first core I am disclosure to make. What? A disclosure? Marty, have you given into Big Pharma? Well, no, it's it's I wish I had that kind of disclosure, but this is a different <laughs> different <laughs> type too. of disclosure. So here it is. I am a sriracha lover and I love Franks and I love wasabi and I selfishly sought out this episode to learn more about Barrett's because my med school hypochondriasis has finally caught up to me. I feel you, Marty, because I have a confession to make too. I actually am heartburn personified. In fact, I think my heartburn has been giving me heartburn because I constantly worry, is this Barrett's? All right, no more beating around the tamales. Time to demystify Dr. Barrett and his legendary esophagus. <laughs> Great call, Shreya. The history is actually kind of interesting because the man who the condition is named for, Dr. Nerman Rupert Barrett, was actually wrong about its pathophysiology. Barrett's is defined by metaplasia, which is when one type of cell is replaced by an entirely different type of cell. In Barrett's, the normal squamous epithelial lining of the esophagus changes into columnar epithelium. Dr. Barrett actually thought that the columnar lining of the esophagus, which is usually found in the stomach, represented a congenital short esophagus. Which was later determined to be incorrect. And if you're into the history of the name, we'll link a cool paper from the Journal of Gastroenterology and Hepatology, which goes through the entire saga. So Barrett's usually occurs in the setting of chronic inflammation, most commonly chronic gastroesophageal reflux. But as we will see in Pearl 2, this doesn't always check out. Yeah, and I think one of the cool things to understand about this change in cell type is how it might play into what the patient is experiencing. One of the pearls that primary care docs can take home is that if you have a patient, um, if you have a white male fat patient who comes in and says, you know, doc, I don't know why, but for whatever reason, my reflux has gotten spontaneously better and you haven't changed their medicine, that may not be any cause for joy. Yeah, and I kind of geek out about the pathophys here. Thinking about how these columnar cells, which are usually lower down the GI tract, but now in the esophagus respond to acid. So we know columnar cells are more resistant to acid. So if it's in the esophagus, it's going to be less sensitive or sensate to irritation from acid. Yeah, the way these studies were done is um, they did what's called Bernstein tests. And what a Bernstein test is that you put a tube down somebody's nose and you drip acid in their distal esophagus. The patient with Barrett's got less symptoms. How much do you guys want to bet that he's actually talking about med students? <laughs> They're <laughs> always poor, med, poor students. med students. <laughs> yeah. But listen, the, the scary part about Barrett's isn't necessarily that first transformation from squamous epithelia to columnar, but it's the further changes that we call dysplasia. And it's really the sum total of those changes that increase the risk for true cancer. Exactly. And a good analogy here is to think about Barrett's like we think about a pap smear, which is looking for metaplasia at the cervix. Sorry, but the idea of pap smears in my esophagus is not easing my reflux. All right, Vishal, <laughs> break it to me gently. How much time do I have left? Easy, Melna. Only about 5% of the overall population actually ends up having Barrett's. 5%? 5% of the U.S. probably represents like millions and millions of people. But I guess the real issue isn't how many people have Barrett's, it's how many people from Barrett's develop adenocarcinoma. Right. And the risk of progression from Barrett's to cancer varies significantly based on how abnormal the cellular architecture has become. 
We call that dysplasia, and we categorize it into low or high grades, depending on how abnormal the cells have become. Okay, so what's the chance of Barrett's converting to adenocarcinoma? Well, for low-grade dysplasia, the annual risk of progression is 0.7 per year. But if you find that your patient's got high-grade dysplasia, then their risk for developing cancer is about 7% per year. Okay, so to review the key points from this pearl. Barrett's is metaplasia of squamous to columnar epithelia in the esophagus. This matters because the prevalence of Barrett's is 5% of the general population. And of those with high-grade dysplasia, there's about a 7% annual risk of developing adenocarcinoma, which is ultimately what we want to try and prevent. And the good news here is that we can and should screen our patients for Barrett's. More on this after the chime. Okay, so if the prevalence of GERD is increasing in the U.S., with Marty and me contributing to that increasing number, should us GIM doctors be as diligent about Barrett's as we are about pap smears? Yeah, so this might be a good opportunity to bring in a case. Mr. Harry T. Byrne is a (laughs) 55-year-old, overweight, (laughs) white male, non-smoker. He has diet-controlled diabetes, and he's coming into the clinic with a year-long history of intermittent reflux symptoms. So thinking about who to screen is really about looking for people that would be the highest risk for esophageal cancer. We're trying to take a relatively high-cost screening test, upper endoscopy, apply it to a relatively low-risk population, even in those with GERD, this cancer is relatively rare. So what we need to do is to tailor our screenable population as best we can to the group that's going to be highest yield. And that's exactly what the 2016 ACG guidelines focus on, just that, better risk stratification for who should get an endoscopy. And we know for a long time that GERD was a risk factor for both Barrett's and cancer, but there are a lot of other risk factors that are actually really useful that we probably don't make as much use of as we should in primary care. Another really simple one that I don't think people adequately appreciate is gender. Um, Men are much more likely to get both Barrett's and this cancer. Um, In fact, if you take, if a 60-year-old man without GERD drives his 60-year-old wife with GERD to the endoscopy center so that she can get her screening endoscopy, the driver is actually at higher risk for Barrett's than is the patient. And I, I think a lot of people don't recognize that. Yep. And so the new guidelines say we should screen men with chronic GERD symptoms for over five years and with two or more of other risk factors. And some other risk factors for progression of cancer include being Caucasian, age over 50 years with any smoking history, And you've got to ask if the patient has any first-degree family members with a history of Barrett's or esophageal cancer, because those also add to your risk. One really important one that's become evident is truncal obesity. If uh, if people have a lot of intra-abdominal fat, they're clearly at much higher risk for both Barrett's and this cancer. Yeah. And what I find fascinating about this screening recommendation about men and chronic GERD symptoms and two risk factors is the statistic that 40% of patients who actually get esophageal cancer never had any symptoms of GERD. So heartburn here isn't a be-all end-all. And one side effect of doing this, of tailoring our population, is that we're going to lose cases. Um, And we knew that up front. In a perfect world, it would be terrific to be able to screen everybody, say, over the age of 50. The problem is that the cost-effectiveness of that with an expensive screening test and a rare cancer is so prohibitive that we're forced into the situation of trying to really focus in on high-risk groups. 
Yeah. And it's so interesting what Dr. Shaheen points out here, how population health dilemma goes into screening guidelines. It's like we're limiting the screening pool so the prevalence of disease is high enough so that the intervention is actually cost effective. And another part I think that can get really confusing about the guidelines is what does five years of GERD actually even mean? Right. Do people have to have heartburn for five straight years? Right. So it's probably going to be a gestalt thing. What we're looking for here is either the symptoms of GERD for about five years or the absence of symptoms with a PPI for that time period. Okay. So when we bring it back to our case, this guy is Caucasian, male, and he has trunkal obesity, but he doesn't have over five years of GERD symptoms. So he's probably in the clear. See, Marty, you and I have nothing to really worry about. I don't know, Melna. I have this weird feeling that one day I'll be the older Caucasian male with long-standing GERD and central obesity. <laughs> Long story short, you're not Aww. making me feel any better. Aww. Yeah. All right, Marty, maybe you should do a trial of PPI and see if that controls your heartburn. And flashback to our Five Pearl segment on PPIs. Remember, take that PPI 30 minutes before your first meal to get the biggest bang for your buck. Nice. Props for that hashtag space repetition you just snuck in there. Yeah, Shreya, we see what you did. <laughs> yeah, hashtag learning theory. But now I'm starting to sound like Marty. Fair enough. All right, so let's summarize. The American College of Gastroenterology has recommended screening for Barrett's esophagus for men with GERD symptoms greater than five years and two or more risk factors like Caucasian race, age over 50 years, any smoking history, central obesity or a family history of Barrett's or esophageal cancer. And despite these guidelines, keep in mind that reflux symptoms are neither sensitive nor specific for Barrett's esophagus. All right, guys, as a primary care doctor, I really want to make sure my patients get a sense of what to expect when I send them to the specialist for testing. So say our older male did have chronic reflux symptoms and had two additional risk factors that we send him to GI. What can I tell him to expect? So when you send your patients over to GI for an EGD, there's a catch, actually. Barrett's tend to occur in a mosaic pattern, so we can easily miss it when you do biopsies. And the results can be very variable and subjective. And our past experience has shown limited accuracy if you grab biopsies just willy-nilly. So GI doctors have to follow a very systematic biopsy protocol, where they grab at least eight biopsies. And then the path needs to be read by not one, but two pathologists, both with experience in Barrett's pathology. Mm, two pathologists, they're really trying to decrease that inter-observer variability. Man, screening is not a piece of cake. No, no, it is not. There's a lot of times in the biopsy results, you get these indeterminate results. And then that mm -hmm. requires the patient to come back again within six months. And then if it's indeterminate again, then you basically do an EGD every year until it's definitely negative or definitely positive. So that was our Dr. Joe Kingsbury. He's a current third-year GI fellow at NYU and a friend of the pod. We know Joe from residency where he took home multiple resident and fellow of the year awards for his clinical knowledge and excellence. I think they were renaming it the Joe Kingsbury resident of the year award. Oh, for <laughs> sure, for sure. Anyway. Hashtag goals. <laughs> yes. So I think just embarking down that path, like referring to GI for the specific issue is a, it's really like the patient thing. Yes, absolutely. No doubt. I want probably multiple procedures um, just for peace of mind or whatever. But that's the conversation that can definitely be held, I think, before they even see us, because if they're like, oh, God, if this is a one and done, then cool. But if I'm going to be going back like a bunch of times a year or every couple of years, then I don't even want to go down that path. 
So this is where patient-centered decision-making comes into play. You and your patient should have a conversation about risk and benefits of initiating screening because it may not be so cut and dry for every patient. Right. I love these patient convos. I think to me, this is where the real art of medicine comes in. Only thing is squeezing them in those 15, 20-minute patient visits. Yeah, fact. So say we talk to our patient, Harry T., about whether it's even worth heading down that road. And he does want the peace of mind. So we go ahead and, and send him for the EGD. The question is then what? Well, the biopsies would come back. And the first branching point would be if there is or isn't any metaplasia. And if it's negative for metaplasia, he doesn't have Barrett's and you just stop there. But if the biopsy results indicate metaplasia, then he has Barrett's. There's three kinds of flavors for positive Barrett's biopsies. You'll see Barrett's with no dysplasia, Barrett's with low-grade dysplasia, and Barrett's with high-grade dysplasia. And Dr. Shaheen had a really great way to think about patients with non-dysplastic Barrett's. Once they're told they have Barrett's and it's a potentially precancerous condition, that's the last thing they hear. But your risk of progression is about three per thousand in any patient here. So the, in non-dysplastic Barrett's, that's non, so over 80% of patients diagnosed with Barrett's will have non-dysplastic Barrett's and will remain with non the vast majority of those will remain with non-dysplastic Barrett's for their entire life. Those patients have a very low risk of progression and over 95% chance that they won't develop esophageal cancer. So what those patients need to hear from you is reassurance. Yeah, that is reassuring. And again, there's definitely an art about how we talk to our patients about things like this. And the way it should be phrased to the patient is, this is a chronic disease, like any other chronic disease, diabetes, hypertension, etc. We check certain parameters to make sure that you're not having your disease worsen. You should think about this just like that. The overall risk of progression is quite low. But what if he has low-grade dysplasia or high-grade dysplasia? What are the key things to talk to our patients about? So if the PATH report comes back with dysplasia, you got to make sure they understand the follow-up. More on that in Pearl 4. So let's review the screening procedures for Barrett's. Screening itself is just an endoscopy, but it's an endoscopy with extra biopsies that are then specially reviewed by an expert pathologist. If the patient has non-dysplastic Barrett's, the key is really reassurance that this is a non-cancerous condition with low likelihood for progression, and we will continue to routinely surveil to make sure that it doesn't progress. So what does a treatment and surveillance look like for our patients with Barrett's? Well, for surveillance, it depends on the grade of dysplasia. So if your patient has Barrett's without dysplasia, it's important they understand they need a repeat EGD every three to five years, which sounds like a reasonable time to wait as it takes a long time to progress to dysplasia anyway. And ACG is now recommending PPI therapy in all patients with Barrett's, even in the absence of GERD symptoms because of its chemoprotective effects. Right, Marty. And we really have good data to support chemoprotection. For example, in a recent meta-analysis based on seven studies with almost 3,000 patients, PPI users had a 71% reduced risk of progressing to high-grade dysplasia or cancer. And that same benefit wasn't really shown with any of our H2 blockers like ranitidine. So really, PPIs rule the day. Mm -hmm. But remember, there is a risk with chronic PPIs like hypomagnesemia or osteoporosis that we talked about in our mm -hmm. previous PPI segment. But I guess with Barrett's, the benefits outweigh the risks. There you go again, Treya, with that spaced repetition. <laughs> Just you wait to see how yeah. we weasel in a pearl from our contrast-induced nephropathy episode. <laughs> All right. I'm always looking for an opportunity to bounce, but let's stay vigilant, Marty. Oh, I'm on it. <laughs> All right, guys. What about surveillance for our dysplastic folks? 
So if it's low-grade dysplasia, there's a choice to start with endoscopic treatment or get annual EGD surveillance. And what about high-grade dysplasia? Right, right. So these are the patients we're trying to find. Well, GI is going to want to treat that bad boy with radiofrequency ablation, which is actually pretty good at delaying the progression from dysplasia to cancer. Yeah. And then after ablation, patients need to have a surveillance by GI. So at that point, it's our job in primary care to make sure that these patients do not get lost to follow up. We found that by giving endoscopic treatments to these patients, you can cause the inner lining of the esophagus to change back to squamous from columnar. So what you do is you go in with the scope and on the tip of the scope, you either put devices that burn or freeze the tissue. And if you destroy the tissue and give the patient rigorous acid suppression, what comes back is not the precancerous cells anymore, it's squamous lining. And in doing that, you can drop their risk of getting cancer by 90%. That's great. And makes me think, why don't we just ablate everyone with Barrett's? And the thing is that there are lots and lots of people with Barrett's. The vast majority of them have non-dysplastic Barrett's. And interestingly, the complication rate of these ablation procedures, while not real high, is 6%. So I'm taking, I'm taking a procedure that has a 6% complication rate to get rid of a condition that has a 3 per 1,000 risk of progressing. So you can see the math doesn't work out. It's only when you get displayed and the risks go up. So let me summarize what I'm hearing. Patients with Barrett's should be on once daily PPI. If your patient has Barrett's without dysplasia, screen them every three to five years with an EGD. And if they have low-grade dysplasia, you have a choice between annual screening or treatment. But if they have high-grade dysplasia, then the next step would be radiofrequency ablation. In all cases of dysplasia, ensure that your patients have good follow-up with GI for appropriate surveillance. Nice, Vishal. So before we get into our throwback pearl, let's take it all the way back to Pearl 1 and finish this off by summing up some of our great clinical pearls on Barrett's. Pearl 1. Most people with Barrett's actually die of reasons unrelated to Barrett's. But despite that, we have to keep in mind patients with high-grade dysplasia have an elevated risk of progression to cancer. Pearl 2. Screen males with long-standing GERD if they have more than two risk factors, including age older than 50, Caucasian race, smoking history, central obesity, or family history. Remember, you should generally avoid screening women unless they have indications for a diagnostic referral. Pearl 3. When you screen patients, the biopsy confirmation of Barrett's can be super cumbersome, so make sure your institution has experienced professionals so you can make an accurate diagnosis. And be sure to sit down with your patients and talk with them about the risks and benefits of screening before you send them to GI. So Pearl 4 was all about treatment. All patients with Barrett should be on a once-daily PPI. Those without dysplasia, we can just screen every three to five years. And on the other end of the spectrum, with high-grade dysplasia, we usually offer endoscopic ablation. If you're in the middle and have low-grade dysplasia, then it's kind of the choice between treatment immediately, followed by surveillance, or just going straight ahead to surveillance. And then obviously, for all of these cases, follow-up is crucial. That's something we can help in primary care. Pearl 5. For a throwback to the Troponin podcast, I really like the discussion about trending troponins. Yeah, I feel like there's always been this dogma to just write in your note, trend troponin, Q at eight hours. Yeah, and I've heard Q8, Q4, Q6. It seems kind of random. Have you guys heard the Q5 hour? <laughs> no, 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 nobody says Q5 hour. <laughs> why not? <laughs> I don't know why not. <laughs> Lobotomy schedule. So what I took away from this is that the troponin interval really should depend on what we're looking for, right? If I'm trying to rule out plaque rupture, I'd rather not find that out at the eight-hour mark. Right. And I think another important thing about this pearl was thinking about the pattern of rise. 
what does that delta of change in troponin over time tell us? Well, basically, if there's a giant jump in your patient's troponin from, say, 0.06 to 5 within two to three hours, then you can be fairly certain you're dealing with a likely ACS situation. And you should be doing all the things like looping in cards and activating your cath lab. And on the flip side, if there's a small delta, say 0.06 to 0.09 in six hours, it might just indicate that the heart is stressing because of something else. Like when your resident forces you to walk up 16 flights of stairs on your night shift. What? Uh, Vishal, are you Yikes. trying to tell me something? You can't just stress test people without asking, Marty. <laughs> oh, I do it goodness. because I care, Vishal. <laughs> all right, all right. I think, it's, oh I think it's time to stop there. All right, if you enjoyed listening to our show, give us a review on iTunes. It really means a lot to us. Follow us on Twitter, Instagram, and Facebook. We work really hard on these podcasts, so we'd love to hear from you. You can also send us an email at coreimpodcast at gmail.com. Let us know what we're doing right and how we can improve for your learning. And as always, opinions expressed in this podcast are our own and do not represent the opinions of any affiliated institutions. Do not use this podcast for medical advice. Instead, see your own healthcare provider for medical care. All right. Thanks for joining us. See you guys next Wednesday. Take care. How do we treat Barrett's and what does surveillance look like for patients with Barrett's? Sorry, start, start over, yeah. Patients? <laughs> Sometimes the words don't come out. Patients with Barrett's. <laughs> well, my patients with Barrett's. <laughs> so, so I think my mouth sometimes works faster than my brain. Um, anyways, okay, <laughs> start over. <laughs> <laughs> Alright, get it out. Watch it, we'll watching Vishal lose it. <laughs> it killed me. This is something he's noticed last three years of training with me. And he's like, wow, uh, finally Shreya knows also. I missed you, Shreya. Uh, <laughs> okay, anyways.